Welcome back to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine and dance science. Today's guest is Dinah Hampson. She is a physical therapist in Canada and founder of Pivot Dancer. We talk about things like creating your integrated team to support you as a dancer. How do we apply the analogy of building habits like brushing your teeth and flossing to keep you seeing the dentist only a couple times a year? How do we apply that in what we do as physical therapists or other healthcare providers working with the dance community? We talk about trends that we've been seeing, sort of our wish list of things we'd love to see for the dance community. So there are a lot of really great things to check out in this episode. Be sure to stick around. She's also got some questions for you to kind of think about some things. So check it out and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to another episode of Dance Med Spotlight, where we talk about all things dance medicine and dance science. Today, I am excited to have my guest, Dinah Hampson from Canada joining us. She is a physical therapist and the owner and creator of Spivet, Pivot Sports Medicine and Pivot Dancer. Welcome, Dinah. Thank you so much, Alyssa. So the first question I always love to ask people is sort of give us the short story version of what got you to this point of working with dancers. Boy, see, the problem with being older is that the short story version becomes longer. Um, okay, so I'll make it as short as humanly possible. Uh, <laughs> I grew up dancing. That was my thing. That was my joy. And when I stopped dancing and went to university, I did love science. I loved little chemistry beakers. I loved, I loved that you could have a problem and solve the problem. And I loved mechanics. So I started out in sciences and then physical therapy kind of seemed like the right fit because it was very mechanical, it was very movement, and it was find a problem, solve a problem. So that kind of all smooshed together. And when I graduated, there wasn't really so much happening in the world of dance science and dance physio. Um, there certainly was not a population of people who provided any sort of dance medicine course structure. I, I went to the second ever IADAMS meeting mm -hmm. when I was a physio student. And it was so new. I think my tuition was $25. Oh and there were about, you know, 100 people in the audience. Like it was that new. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of fell into sport. And although I wasn't a sporty person myself, I could break down movement really well from years of minutia of movement through dance. And that put me in this place of being able to work in high performance, which I loved, being able to work in movement, which I loved. And through sport, I kind of naturally fell into the artistic athlete. So gymnastics, figure skating, synchronized swimming, diving, these were all kind of my easy cup of tea. Mm -hmm. uh, and then over the years, what ended up happening was I started Pivot Sport Medicine, um, gosh, uh, about five, five, six years after I graduated. 
and the dancers started to find me. So my cohort who were still dancing, my cohort who were directing, choreographing, mm -hmm. they were like, oh, Dinah has a clinic. And they started to send people and then that kind of blossomed. So it's really, it really is a long story because, uh, you know, if you're a new grad and you're like, oh, easy peasy, I'll just put this together and do a Dinah. Like this has taken 30 years. Mm hmm Mm hmm. Yeah, it's always such a journey because it's, I think there's a lot that we're still, still figuring out of what it is to work within the dance community, how we can best help them and building that relationship with the dance community. And so it's not something where you can just go, I'm going to open doors to this place and they're going to magically show up and it's going to be great. And all of that. There's there's a lot that has to go on in between to get to that point. For, for you, I know you've had a lot of different opportunities in what you're doing also from working with the Olympics, working with your dancers, being faculty, being a researcher. You've worn a lot of different hats. Tell me a little bit about maybe some of your highlights or some of your favorites. I... Um, I would suggest people wear as many hats as possible because, uh, I mean, who doesn't love a walk-in wardrobe, right? It's amazing. Um, it keeps life interesting. I think the highlights for me are any opportunity I get to give back. So, you know, when I got to the point where I wasn't attending the conferences, I was speaking at the conferences. That was really cool. That that was a huge stepping stone for me because I was shy. I didn't really think I was an expert at something. Mm -hmm. And so being in front of your peers and presenting something that you are actually really good at was very rewarding. And, and I think that's a bit of a, a tick mark. Um, I mean, the big, the big sporty things, I mean, yeah, it's cool to go to something like the Olympics. It's large, it's fun, it's worldwide. And I think for me, it gives me a different perspective on what I do with dancers. Mm. Because, uh, you know, you, you hear from dancers a lot. Dancers are like, why can't we be treated like athletes? Why don't we get the support that athletes get? You know, why don't we have in-house medicine? Why don't we have in-house strength and conditioning? Yes. Why do we have to search this out? And athletes just get to go to these events. They get to go to the Olympics and everything's there for them. And they get jackets and suitcases and their travel is paid for. And why isn't dance treated the same way? You know, so these are conversations mm -hmm. that bubble up in, in the dancer world. Yes. And... Certainly being on the inside in the sport world, you you do have a different understanding of it that honestly, what you see on TV is the highlight reel. And those athletes have every single hurdle that dancers have. They probably have a better network to mm -hmm. find resources within because there's a lot more things named sport. Um, but they really do have the same hurdles. They have the same scheduling hurdles. They have the same financial hurdles. In sport, when you go to a 
big games like an Olympic Games, my favorite thing to do is to go to the cafeteria mm. because you have every single country and every single sport all doing the same thing at the same time. They're all eating, right? Mm -hmm. They're all there to get their meal, have some conversation, have some food. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, baseball is baseball. They only ever meet baseball players and only in their division or their geographic region. Right. And, you know, for them, when they go to this, they're like, oh, that's a rower, that's a gymnast, you know? Um, and so dancers kind of forget that, you know, dancers can feel very isolated, yeah. um, but they're, they're not really that different than other athletes in other sports. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a highlight. Um, I spent some time at my university on the admissions committee. So yes, I've taught and I, I teach as faculty, but I was yeah. invited to be part of the admissions committee. And I think for anyone in their profession, being invited to be a part of the decision-making process for the generations to come, mm -hmm. that's really neat because you, you get to have a say and you get to put all of your experience from maybe, you know, what you saw didn't go quite well when you started. And, you know, what do we want that next generation to look like? It's kind of like parenting a whole profession. Mm -hmm. um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, and then I would say, like, really jumping in with two feet to the dance world and saying, I have this great business. I have this awesome clinic. We treat lots of people. It's fun. Um, it's rewarding. It pays for my groceries. Mm -hmm. And But it is pivot sport medicine. And about five years ago, I decided, you know what? I'm going to make like, you know, cherry Coke to Coca-Cola. I'm going to call it pivot dancer. Let's call it what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, and let's have a brand that dancers can recognize as something that is for them. So it's not the dancers going to the sport medicine clinic. It's the dancers going to the dance medicine clinic. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty proud of that. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, some interesting things that you said there and thinking about kind of comparing and contrasting the different kinds of athletes and some of the struggles that they may or may not have along the way and and getting involved in admissions. I know I've been able to be a part of our PT program's um, interview days for several years now. And I just love it. Everyone comes in and, you know, of course they're, they're nervous coming in, but they're also so excited and you start asking them questions and the things that they're looking forward to as a future professional and things that they're like, you know, this is how I foresee myself maybe making an impact in the world and that kind of stuff. I just always leave every day, even though they can be long days or times where, I, you know, you get tired also interviewing. Um, it's still just like, oh my gosh, they have such great ideas and such enthusiasm and all of that sort of thing. I, I love doing interview days. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And, you know, like how great is it that we change? Yeah. You know, the the other thing you hear in dance all the time now is like, ooh, are we doing it right? Are we changing? Are we are we stuck in our ways? Mm -hmm. um, you know, who's changing? Who's not changing? What's right? What's wrong? 
Well, people change, like stuff changes. Our mm -hmm. physical therapy profession has changed. It yes. should change. Yes. So. Yeah, I think w something that I can't remember, it might have been actually I Adams last year at a presentation. Someone was talking about sort of the history and the tradition within ballet specifically. And we know that the way that ballet was codified and how it's progressed over time, it's stayed pretty true along the way of how we practice it now versus how we did back then and questions of are there changes that we could make that may be beneficial for a variety of reasons just even in training in the classroom much less any of the training and things that we're looking at outside of the studio and just for regular life it was an interesting thing yeah and i mean i think what i would say to you know our audience right now is you're if you're listening to this talk you are interested in dance right you're interested mm -hmm. in what is current and happening in dance and i mean contemporary choreography with a ballet company was something that i didn't see when i was a child yeah and I'm not that old. You know, now mm -hmm. I don't know of a ballet company that doesn't have a contemporary choreography like portion of their mm -hmm. season. So, you know, I think just that alone, right? If we all accept that as a, a reality, then we have to trickle that out and go, okay, if the dancers are being asked to do different things, the audiences are paying tickets for those things. The audiences want to see them. Mm -hmm. So the directors are choosing choreographers and pieces to bring to their companies, to their dancers, for their audiences, that is something different, not traditional. So how can we possibly expect those dancers to train exactly the same way that they did 200 years ago mm -hmm. when the demands that are being placed on them are different? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I work quite a bit with adolescent dancers, typically competitive, pre-professional, vocational programs somewhere in that vein. And some of the things that I see them doing now, as far as even expectations of acro tricks and, you know, getting even higher in their leaps and higher extensions and all of these different things are definitely more than when I was growing up dancing and what was typical in just, you know, in a dance studio in town and that sort of thing, much less with some of these other groups where they do have kind of these professional aspirations with things. And so, yeah, it's exactly that where we need to make sure that we're supporting their bodies and all of these wild and crazy things that we're asking of them that are amazing that our bodies can do, but we want to make sure that we're healthy in all of it too. Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I kind of love it. I mean, I think that we can at this point say dance is changing. It's changed. Mm -hmm. It's changing. It will probably change further. And isn't it cool that we can now do research that says, 
hey, we have ways to do it better. Um, I think that's all really, really neat. I, I do like you brought up tricks and acro. And so, I, I mean, I will say you have to keep the dance. Mm -hmm. You know, so for dancers who are like, how do I learn that trick? How do I, how do I do more? Don't forget that you're still dancing. Um, and yes, have your body be able to support higher level skills, but always dance it. You know, if you look back mm -hmm. to like the days of Olga Corbett in gymnastics, she was mm -hmm. incredibly celebrated, a Russian gymnast. And if you compare her routines with like Simone Biles, right? So these are two yeah. very famous gymnasts. I mean, Sabrone brings an athleticism to her gymnastics that is far beyond what Olga brought to hers. What both of them share is that quality of presentation and performance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where dance is so unique and wonderful, right? Because you maintain that quality of performance, presentation with doing the higher skills. Yes. What is concerning from a, a physical therapy perspective is when kids are trying to do, learn these skills and do these skills and perform, like they can't do everything. If they mm -hmm. don't have the physical preparation to do the higher level skills, then they simply can't perform it well because the brain is trying so hard to make their muscles do the, the movement properly. That mm -hmm. movement has to become easy and graceful and, you know, purposeful. So then it's presented well. Yes. There was a study and now I'm not going to remember who the authors were, but it was a study that was looking at either a ballet or contemporary professional company. And they not only tested things like endurance and strength and some of the things that we think of just from the physicality standpoint, but they also did an aesthetics test Ooh. and they looked at their lines and you know how well they stayed on balance and the height of their jumps and different things. And then they had some of these dancers go through a strength and conditioning program, an exercise program. And not only did they see improvements in things like endurance and strength and all of that kind of stuff, but they all actually scored better on the aesthetics test as well. And I love that study because, you know, it's one study that we have that looks at that, but it's just cool to think that even though we're, we're getting these gains in that physical portion, we still are supporting the artistic side of all of it and the aesthetic side of all of it. I, I think I've read that study um, because I, I do a lot of arguing um, in really polite ways. Uh, to, to say, you know, no, you will not lose your flexibility, right? Um, yes. if you would like to jump higher, then we need to strengthen and lengthen at the same time. And we need, we need to break it down and do these strength and power moves, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I find I need a lot of different ways to explain that to parents and dancers and teachers. They all have, they all need their own explanation. 
Um, and so I do a lot of looking up of research to support what I'm saying. So I'm pretty sure I, I remember that article. And mm -hmm. one of the things I remember from it was um, the jump um, elongation. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that properly? So yeah. if you think of like a grand jeté, like the height of your legs, let's say. And so what was really interesting was they had determined that the power increases in the dancers was giving them extra height time. So it was extra time in the air, which allowed the dancer to use their full extension because they simply had more time to do it. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about gaining more extension. It was about giving the dancer more time to utilize their physical resources. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this year, I did a case study with one of my competitive teens. And we just decided to have her go through a strengthening program for 12 weeks and did a lot of monitoring along the way to see what happened. And we saw a lot of really great improvements and a lot of different things, but it makes me think of her description of that when she started to notice that she had more airtime and leaps and more sort of space in her turns to be able to really control and maybe get more revolutions and things. She would always call it, it was more floaty as I do it. I love that. And I that. just love that because it is kind of that sensation. Anyone who has danced and done some of those movements, it does feel like you kind of have this moment of like weightlessness in the air where you can just kind of breathe for a second before coming back down or that sort of thing. Well, that's that magical pause, right? I, yeah. I always, um, when I work with people, I, I like think of the magical pause, right? Think of that moment in time when you would snap the perfect photograph. Mm -hmm. And you can't snap a perfect photograph if you're in movement. Yeah. So you, you have to have that beautiful magical pause. And it's kind of like when the magician, you know, pulls the the hoop through and all of a sudden the person is floating in the air right mm -hmm. it's it's that's the moment where an audience is like whoa that's cool yeah so yeah we go for those <laughs> magic moments i think there's a song um <laughs> <laughs> well and um i love that you did the qualitative piece in, in what you were looking at. I was talking mm -hmm. with a dancer this morning who's participating in a research project that I have going on this year, which I'm really excited about and we'll present at iAdams, hopefully not this year, it won't be ready, but next year. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about the different objectives that we were using. And she was questioning why we were using the number of pirouettes as mm. an objective measure. Because she said, you know what, honestly, Dinah, I don't think it'll change. She said, I like, I can bang out a ton of pirouettes. They may not be pretty. But mm -hmm. if you're looking at revolutions, then I can get those revolutions. So I don't know that that's a great measure to use. And why are you yeah. using it? I said, okay, well, we're using it, A, because it's been used in prior research, looking at the impact of strengthening programs on dance outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you always build on 
research, right? We're, we're all just putting little building blocks in so that eventually we get up here. Yep. Um, so that's one reason. And I said, the other thing is that maybe it won't be a difference in the number of turns that you're doing, but we have a qualitative piece in this research study. So it's not simply going to be your objective measures of how many turns, how long is your balance, how long is your playing, how many, you know, it's not mm -hmm. just those, but there will be this questionnaire piece. And that's where you may find that you have your difference. So it's finding your floaty. Did you feel more floaty? You know, what did you feel? Mm -hmm. I felt more centered. I felt, you know, more capable. I felt I could move directly into something else, whatever it is. So I don't have the research yet, but I'm really excited to see what people say. Yes, it was it was a fun portion of the data collection because she especially just got so excited because basically one of my questions was, what are comments that you're getting in class or, you know, went from judges when you're competing and that kind of thing. So just kind of keeping track of what she's hearing as feedback from other people. And she would just get so excited about, you know, they told me my turns are getting better or I got higher scores than I've gotten on this routine earlier in the season or, you know, things like that. And it was just so fun seeing her excitement about the changes that she was experiencing, even though we sort of knew some of the why we were seeing some of those changes. Um, those were the things that were meaningful for her. So, okay, well, here's a thought, which is interesting for all of all of our audience people um you know in the dance science world we we know we have enough knowledge to be like yeah if you do strengthening you're going to dance better mm -hmm. you're gonna get injured less right mm -hmm. if you stretch properly by lengthening your tissues under appropriate tension and not hanging them on a coat hanger for a day right. <laughs> um then you know you're not going to get the injuries associated with overstretching connective tissues um mm -hmm. so we we have this stuff on the dance science end and then we have the dancers who didn't sign up for gym class they signed up for dance they love dance they probably in all honesty hate gym class mm -hmm. um they probably don't even like sports a lot of them so yeah. how do we make that excitement and fun happen in mm -hmm. the dance population so that they embrace the things that we know from a science perspective are going to make them better dancers, are going to make them healthier humans, are going to make them ultimately enjoy dance more because they're going to do better in competitions, they're gonna sky, score higher, they're gonna get better feedback, but mm -hmm. how do we convince them? How do we convince them to brush their teeth? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think that is the challenging part. I think one of the things that you know, the longer I've been doing this and the more that I'm working maybe with some of the dance teachers, the educators, um, presenting at some of their conferences and going where they're at sometimes is, 
even teaching them simple ways to integrate like an exercise or two into a dance class they're already going to be teaching. So we're like sneaking it in there to get them stronger and go, oh, oh maybe this is something. Um, you know, I, I, that's always the hard part is getting that that buy-in, especially when we're thinking just kind of across the community as a whole and not just one individual dancer at a time, because that's going to take forever um, to accomplish that. And so that's been sort of kind of one of my tactics now is really working more with the dance educators mm -hmm. and hoping that they're bringing some of that into the studio or into the classroom with them to just integrate it already make it part of the culture. Yeah, I I agree with you. I love it. I think mm -hmm. I'm in the one by one territory myself. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of think, you know, it's wonderful that you, you have a podcast, right? You, um, there are other podcasts out there. I've now spoken on several podcasts, which is so fun. I love meeting people, love talking to people. And, yeah. you know, I'm like, it has to add up. At some point in time, all of the grains of sand have to make a little castle. Mm -hmm. but yeah, mm -hmm. it feels, feels like a small castle right now. Right. <laughs> but for each making little contributions, we'll we'll get to the castle here eventually. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I think I think I've seen at least a decent shift from when I was growing up dancing of some of the common sort of myths of, you know, don't lift weights, it's going to make you bulky or, you know, some of those kinds of things. So at least some of those ideas, I feel like are dissolving away and opening up some opportunity for some of these other things that we're really hoping catch on really quickly for the dance community. Um, so, you know, there there is definitely movement. We just need to figure out how to make it make it continue, make it keep going a little bit faster, pick up some momentum. Yeah. Well, one thing I've noticed in my practice, so I, I was flipping through some videos the other day and I found a video that I made five years ago when I started Pivot Dancer and it was like, what is Pivot Dancer, right? Mm -hmm. Introduced Pivot Dancer. And I was fascinated because I remember my goal was the adolescent dancer. My mm -hmm. goal was, hey, if I can get these, these kids, you know, who are changing and kind of getting to that age 12, age 13, dance is becoming more serious, dance skills are becoming harder, I can really impact their injury prevention. Um, and then what ended up happening was those aren't the people who come see me. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who come see me are the professional dancers who already have a career who have now realized that their body is their instrument. And if their instrument falls out of tune, they can't work and they mm -hmm. can't make money. And those things are scary. So. I sort of became the, you know, the, the go-to resource for the person who was already accomplished through their training, already in their career, and now looking for the ways to maintain that career mm -hmm. um, and their livelihood. 
right? So it's interesting to me because it wasn't really what I set out to do. And so now I keep trying to fight back into the adolescent world and go, okay, look, look at these people, right? And so I mm -hmm. have to admit that I fully will use my adult professional dancers as examples yeah. of this is where you're going, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who are, you know, you in eight years, you in 10 years, and um, trying to get the kids to buy in by having these mentors and examples. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you if it's working yet, but that's where I'm going. Yeah. Well, and one thing that I actually really love and appreciate is some of the professionals, some of the big name professionals out there of, um, you know, like, uh, oh, is it, it's not Stephen White. Um, there's a Stephen White in the West yeah. Coast Wing community. Um, oh my gosh, why am I forgetting his name? But, you know, he went through a big injury last year and he did a lovely job sharing on social media some of his journey coming back and showing some of the things that he's doing and seeing that, yes, he was in the gym and lifting weights and doing all of these different things. And now Stephen McRae with the Royal Ballet, he's had an injury and he did a post just a couple of days ago praising Royal Ballet and saying, you know, I'm so thankful to have these resources that we have here to be able to start even the prehab journey, knowing that he's probably going to have surgery. Um, but knowing that he has those resources. And so, you know, I think if there are people who are willing to share some of those stories, some of those experiences and their journey, that also can start to kind of normalize some of this and going, oh, hey, maybe this is something that other dancers can have access to or should have access to because they have they have the public eye, they have the audience to be able to try to have some of that influence as well. Yeah. No, it, it's great. I and you know, for all of the things that social media may be not so wonderful for, I, I do think that it's been extremely helpful for people like you and I who are, you know, flowing with change and trying to find that audience and educate an audience beyond our clinical doors and mm -hmm. beyond, you know, a written journal. Like it's great for us. We get to go to conferences. Right, we get to go to clinical conferences and talk to all these people from all over the world, share ideas, and we're like, "Yeah, we know what we're doing," um, and, and then translating it to the general population is challenging. But social media has actually made that accessible. Mm -hmm. Definitely, super tangent, but there you go. Yeah, yeah, it it has been a helpful thing for sure. Let's kind of maybe switch gears of sorts. Yeah, do it. Um, and let's talk a little bit about, so earlier at the very beginning, we were talking about some of your experiences, including working with athletes, maybe at the Olympic level even, and recognizing that there are a lot of similarities for them compared to our dancers. How about sort of any, whether it's flip side or the yes and then, kind of talking about the need for expertise working with dancers and aesthetic athletes um, and not just approaching perhaps like 
some of our other athletes? Uh, yeah. Okay. So sort of what, what are the ideal resources that a dancer needs? Yeah. Like why, why do they need some of these different experts mm. or a different type of expertise and how might they access them? That's a great question. I love this. Uh, so in the sport world, what we do is we organize something called an integrated sport team. So you, if you are a basketball player, you have your, your team, which has a coach, and you have your technical trainers who will teach you basketball. Um, and then, of course, you have your athletes that you participate with and train with, and you, you have your, your team, right? Mm -hmm. So, and even if you're in a solo sport, so let's say you're a, a runner, you know, you, you have a community of runners, you still have a running coach. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how you learn your technique. The integrated sport team is outside of the technical team. So the integrated sport team would consist of your equipment manager. So the person who makes sure that the basketballs are blown up properly, that your you know, shoes are not worn out, that the track is you know not covered in glass like somebody who manages mm -hmm. equipment you would have um people like uh your exercise physiologist or bio biomechanist you know what is your running efficiency look like what is your shooting efficiency look like mm -hmm. and then a big part of your integrated sport team are your healthcare professionals so you would have your sport medicine physician, your sport physical therapist, your sport chiropractor, your sport massage therapist, your sport dietitian. You know, um, in artistic, you often have your choreographer and sometimes even your costume designer is mm -hmm. is a part of that team. So I I will give Jen Milner credit, and if you don't know who she is, she's a fabulous physical therapist in Texas. And Jen once described the dancer's pit crew, which I have fully taken on. And I love that. I yeah. love that dancers, I think if dancers can be aware that there is this team of people out there to support them outside of their studio. So what they get in their studio is technique. They get technical training. They get their cohort of peers who they mm -hmm. dance with and train with and learn from. But they go to the studio for dance. And, and I actually think that it's important that they have that. You yeah. know, and going to the studio to do physical training may not be the best venue to do it. In fact, there is research to say that it should be outside of the studio mm -hmm. and um, it should be purposeful to itself. So dancers should look outside of the studio for their healthcare team, of which it can be, you know, a bunch of different practitioners, somebody, you know, who can help them with their aches and pains, somebody who can help them if they have an actual injury that needs diagnosis and treatment. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then you know somebody to fill in particular gaps especially if they have some sort of systemic issue where like if they're a diabetic and they need to know how to manage their diabetes as they're dancing so their sugars are under control if they're doing lots of cardio or you know etc um so there there are those healthcare people and then of course you know the adjunct how to put on your makeup how to do your shoes how to pick your costume what color should you wear these are all pieces of the pit crew the challenge where do they find a pit crew mm-hmm. you know it might be a little might be a little easier in an urban center although i would argue that it's not necessarily easier despite more resources potentially being present mm-hmm. because dancers a likely don't know to look outside of the studio B, likely are already spending a lot of time and money in the studio. And so why can't I get everything I need at the studio? Mm -hmm. Why isn't it in that bucket? Um, I'm going to say my favorite analogy for this is the dentist. Because Mm. certainly in North America and in most of the world, we have the knowledge that if we go see a dentist, they are the people who take care of our teeth. Outside of seeing the dentist, who we see probably twice, maybe three times a year, we know to brush our teeth. Mm -hmm. We know to hopefully floss our teeth, although I don't love doing that. You know, we we know that if we spend $1.99 on a toothbrush and $4.99 on toothpaste, that's going to keep us a couple of months, you know, whereas that visit to the dentist is going to be exponentially more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we only need to do it a couple of times a year. So, you know, I think in the same way that you would find your dentist, you need to find your dancer pit crew. Yeah. And you don't have to, sorry, I, I totally went off there, but um, for, you know, if you're looking for your pit crew, it does exist. How do you find it? Mm-hmm. Go onto the internet because we're all on there now. Yes. Um, we certainly have resources like Dance Med Spotlight Podcast. This is awesome. We have iAtoms. We have the big resources, which are probably, frankly, scary if you are a 12-year-old dancer. So if you're a 12-year-old dancer, go on Instagram and see who is doing really interesting things. Right. And maybe they're not 12, but maybe they're 18 years old, you know, and mm-hmm. and you can I think you're supposed to be 18 to be on social media. <laughs> um, but go with your parents. Right. And parents. Oh, my gosh. Parents, you play a huge role in yes. this because you are the, the chaperones. You are the credit card. You are the Uber driver. You are, you know, the people. Um So parents, if parents can understand that they really only want to see the dentist two or three times a year, and that that toothbrushing is really important, that's the same with a dancer's pit crew. We are not that expensive from a maintenance perspective. And if you see us once or twice or three times a year and do the work in between, it's not expensive. It's accessible. Pivot Dancer has an app. There are other apps available. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I don't know all the names offhand, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, I, I often say, like, as you said at the beginning, I'm in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of dancers in the U.S. who love Pivot Dancer because the exchange rate gives you 30% off. Mm -hmm. it, you know, so it, mm -hmm. it, it does not have to be expensive. It is very accessible. So go onto social media, find somebody who you're like, they're smart. They're saying good things. And go through their posts. I'm sure that there are comments from people like you and me, and you can build a little pit crew. It does not have to be geographically proximal to you. Yep. You know, that's the other wonderful thing about the internet. It, mm -hmm. We have um, the one of the guys who does strength and conditioning for Pivot Dancer is a, an osteopathic practitioner who is the professional strength and conditioning coach of the Curacao national soccer team. Mm. So he lives in Curacao mm -hmm. and does strength and conditioning programs for Pivot Dancer, which is essentially based in Canada, sort of. Um, but because it's virtual, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's a really long winded, I will break it down into bullet points. You need to have <laughs> your integrated sport team or your integrated dance team. Those people are the extra people who take care of you outside of the technique that you learn in studio. There should be some healthcare pieces in there. There should be some, mm -hmm. you know, mental health, physical health. Um, make sure you're eating properly. Make sure you are a healthy human who can, you know, challenge, accept all of the challenges brought to you in your studio. Mm -hmm. And if you have local resources, wonderful. If you're not finding local resources or those ones aren't working for you, go on to the Internet. Mm -hmm. Find something that looks interesting to you and start scrolling through who they're connected to. And I guarantee that there are people out there willing to help. I mean, yes, like definitely. a Pivot Dancer app subscription, uh, it's ridiculous. It's 150 Canadian a year, which mm -hmm. I think is about, I think it's like $120 US or like 100 12 it's it's so mm -hmm. it's so small it's like ten dollars a month essentially you know yeah. that's less than two coffees mm -hmm. especially if you get whipped cream on your coffee um fancy <laughs> yeah we do like our whipped cream um but yeah so that's that is how a dancer can become cared for like an athlete mm -hmm. you know the bubble is there we know what you need to put into the bubble you can find the pieces. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make such a good point of there are so many ways to have access to these different people. I know the dietitians that I primarily refer to when I feel like that needs to be brought in in particular for a dancer. They're all outside of Colorado. They're licensed in Colorado, but they're all outside of Colorado and they're able to help. And there are a lot of professionals that you know, for things where if it requires a license for something, they may have licenses in multiple places so that they can help outside of whatever state or country they're in. There are things that we can provide where 
the license piece isn't crucial. And so there's a lot more flexibility in how we can work with folks. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I think sometimes the dancers or their parents, you know, whoever's kind of doing the research, making the decisions sometimes thinks like, oh, I'm, I'm in this little rural town somewhere. Where am I ever going to find these people that you talk of? The internet. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. <laughs> it is a wonderful thing. I mean, I grew up with magazines and, you know, you'd look through the magazine and see where people were. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, for parents, gosh, I really hope that parents listen to these talks. Um, the The licensing is an issue. And for anyone who doesn't understand that, it it's like I'm a licensed physical therapist in the province of Ontario, in the country of Canada. So I will not be doing physical therapy in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Can I advise movement and look at alignment? Absolutely, 100%. Can I mm -hmm. pull out my book of connections in the physical therapy world and find somebody who is licensed in Colorado? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's kind of like go, go to the environment that you need. Yeah. And we don't have to physically set foot in that environment anymore. We can just find it on the internet and then use use those people as your resource. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. And going back to your point also of this idea of like, you know, kind of having your crew that helps you with maintenance and that you can go to when you need particular things when something pops up. I know some of my favorite clients sometimes are the ones who've you know, they've kind of been off and on with me over the years now, and they know kind of their their stuff that they should be working on and what they incorporate into their regular routine. And then they get to a point where maybe they do a monthly check-in for some updates on things. And then maybe we go to like quarterly check-ins and modify their exercise program and what they're doing. And, you know, they have those things that they can go back to those resources to keep themselves in maintenance mode and, and, or building mode, whatever they're doing, but then they know they can come back where, you know, I tweaked my ankle in class or my shoulders bugging me after doing some partnering or who knows what they know that they can come back for those things. And so I love when we're able to get to that point where we can be fluid in maintaining their health, maintaining their safety, um, and be there when they need me more specifically too. Yeah, 100%. I, it's, um, I always tell people, you know, healthcare should not be a good business model, right? Mm -hmm. Like our, our goal is that people do not need us. Exactly. And I would much rather give people my investment in their preventative health than to have to do reactive treatment. Because frankly, mm -hmm. once you're injured, that's hard. That's hard work. You know, if you've yeah. blown something apart, well, now we have to put it back together. And frankly, putting it back together is not always easy. Mm -hmm. So, um, my my neighbor is just coming to my door. Um, I I don't think he knows. I'm on the, I'm just gonna ignore that. Um, the doorbell may ring again. Um, so what I was saying was preventative health is our goal. Mm -hmm. 
in mm-hmm. healthcare. If if your practitioner's goal is for you to come see them forever and ever, maybe that's not the best place for you to be. Mm-hmm. Treating injuries, the injury is already happening. And repairing damage is never as easy as taking your car in and getting a replacement. Humans are just not built like that. Yep. So preventing the injuries from happening is absolutely the best way to go. Um, and then if you you know need us, it's so much easier. I mean, one mm-hmm. of my dancers said to me the other day, she, she was very concerned. She sprained her ankle. It was an audition period. And um she she's like what am i gonna do and i was like just wait it's all good like go home you know do your thing do your range of motion and she called me the next day and she's like you're not gonna believe this it's better and i was like yeah (laughs) because you've done all the work to be strong you've done all the work to balance you recognize this was unusual for you you Mm -hmm. stopped you waited and it's fine. Yeah. I know yeah. one of the things that we we put into um, like mm-hmm. I, I deal mostly subscription with dancers because I mm-hmm. am remote. And so for our um, primarily um, principal dancers, like our our professionals, uh, they they like to come all the time. So they just have an unlimited membership. They come to all the classes they want to. And part of what I give them is I call it the 24-hour helpline. And I'm like, look, if you send us a message, it will be replied to within 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I don't care how you do it, Instagram, text, email, whatever, uh, it will be replied to. And there's I think there's a comfort in that. So when you develop that IST or your integrated dance team, like know that you have those people available to you. And like, again, you know, we're going to be there. That's just who we are. That's why we became these people. Right. Otherwise we would have become something different. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's one of the things. So like my practice in Colorado, it's, um, a self-pay clinic and I do the whole spectrum of stuff for my clients. One of the things that is, that I just knew I needed to include in there is the ability to reach out and get a prompt response for things. And like some of my parents love that because maybe they're at a competition and their dancer had something happen and they go, oh my gosh, they're having this pain. What should I do? And we're able to kind of talk through things and say, you know, here are some things to try. Here are some things to keep an eye out for to maybe say, this is something that needs more immediate care, like urgent care or the emergency room. Um, But being able to just kind of talk through something, get talked off the ledge a little bit sometimes um, and get some reassurance and then be able to get them in soon for an appointment to actually get it checked out if it is something that is sticking around. But they love having that ability to be able to reach out and get that response like that and get that guidance. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think if people know that they can do it, and not feel shy about it, like, please do it. I mean, I would certainly encourage anyone listening to this. I mean, send me a message. I'm really easy to find on the internet. 
like disco pivot dancer, Dinah Hansen, I'm there. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, if I can't help, if Alyssa can't help, we know people who yes. can, uh, don't be afraid. And, you know, there's things like, um, dancer chats. I mean, I know there's lots of resources out there, but I was like, let's just do a free class. Like, let's do a dancer chat. Any dancer can come. Any sport med people, any dance med people, I don't care. You're interested in dance. Come on, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So I know I'm not the only person and place to do that, but there are places to find. So if you don't have them, come to mine. It's free. Um, having the conversation, you know, start it with a conversation and you you will open all the doors so i i think that would be my take home message from this talk is mm -hmm. just know that there are the resources there to support you in a dance journey in a new way that will support new tricks new skills new choreography because we base it in science we have enough science now and build that pit crew support team. Um, it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be time consuming. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think this is a good opportunity and you already partially beat me to the punch, which is totally fine for the special segment. So we have the final bow. So not only thinking of the takeaway message, but also your opportunity to talk about what you have going on, anything that you want to share with the folks who are listening. So this is your opportunity to promote stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to promote brushing your teeth in a dance way. Like, um, if you go to bed and you think to yourself, did I do one thing? to help me be a better dancer today? And if the answer is no, then maybe do a plank or you know, maybe do some squats or maybe write in your journal what your goals are to do better. But mm -hmm. I think we can start that toothbrushing of one thing a day that makes you just that little bit more. Yes. Um, please do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm very happy to talk to people and meet people. I love what I do. I'm so excited to see uninjured dancers and people coming from all over the world. You know, when I do my live classes, which are virtual, I live in this virtual space. Um, I think it's the only place I know where I see community dancers and professional dancers and like just people from musical theater, like all these different performance worlds gathering together. It's like the cafeteria at the Olympics. They are all yeah. there to work on being better performers and better dancers. And they're all having fun and they're all talking to each other and it is magical. So mm -hmm. come to a class. Everybody's first class is free. So just sign up for Pivot Dancer. It doesn't cost you anything. And 
come join us for a class. Experience what it's like to do something that's a little bit outside the box. Mm -hmm. And if you're never going to go to the Olympics, this is the closest you will get to that Olympic cafeteria. So, yeah, hope to see you. Yeah, I love that. Definitely encourage people to go check it out. So many great resources that you have there. Um, and we'll make sure to share out all of the different, you know, social media handles and website links and that kind of thing to make it even easier for people who've listened to this and are like, hmm, there's something that sounds interesting here to be able to go and find you. Awesome. This has yeah. been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Right, let me end the Dance Med Spotlight is hosted and produced by Alyssa Arms. We discuss all things dance medicine. This has been another episode from Dance Med Spotlight. The Dance Med Spotlight is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present.